We're in the midst of a series called The Exchange, in which we're talking about some of the shifts in our culture and exploring how we as Christians are to understand those shifts, but also live in light of those. There's an outline provided. You will need it. If you want to track with me today, it will be helpful. I would encourage you to take it out. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Father God, teach us from your word. Uh, Lord, this is a uh, topic that I know is way beyond me. It's way beyond any of us, I think, to really fully understand the complexity of, of life and of sexuality and all of the drives and passions that all of us experience. So, Father, I pray that you um, use your word in a way to really bring hope and help and to really shed light on our lives, on our culture, so that we know how to live in it. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. When you talk about cultures in transition or the reshaping of our culture and the way it thinks, there is undoubtedly no more clear example of things changing than public opinion on the topic of homosexuality. There was a study done by the Barna Research Group where they researched, especially focusing on all ages, but with special attention to young adults between 16 and 29, to explore their perspective, their thinking about a variety of issues. This was one of them. It's reported in the book Unchristian by David Kenneman. I'd highly recommend his book and his follow-up book, You Lost Me. In the book... The research points this out, and this will not surprise you. When asked the question, is the homosexual lifestyle a major problem facing America? All adults in general, the percentage that answered that yes is 35%. That's a dramatic drop from the way it would have been 10 years earlier. But notice this trend, that among elder churchgoers, it was 58% thought it's a major problem, Among boomer churchgoers, my generation, uh, it was 46%. Among younger churchgoers, it was 29%. And among younger adults in general outside the church, it was only 17% felt it was a problem. It's no surprise that right now it's in the news because our Supreme Court is dealing with the issue of gay marriage and gay rights. And there is no issue... I don't believe in today's culture as controversial and perhaps as hard to understand as this one. To those outside the church, Christians are assumed to be leading the opposition and unfortunately too often identified with those radicals on the extreme that you see on the street corner declaring hateful signs and messages and judgment on the gay community. The reality is I know very few serious followers of Christ who would use that type of abusive and hostile language. But yet many of us, and including myself in this, I think struggle to really understand and find the balance as to how you deliver what you really believe is true in a, in a spirit that engages the culture and doesn't just turn it off in a spirit of what I would call grace and truth, as I've titled to today's message. Responding with grace and truth. Why do I pick that? Well, I ask the question, how would Jesus respond to today's debate? And as soon as I ask that, I've got to go to John 1.14, where Jesus was portrayed by the man who knew him best, the Apostle John, as a man full of grace and truth. Consistently, you see Jesus encountering people, struggling with sin, struggling with different issues, religious and non-religious, and always responding with this unique blending of grace and truth. And if we're to be the church, I think we've got to figure out how to respond with both. Therein lies the challenge. Today, I don't want to talk about politics. I want to talk about people. And God loves people more than he does politics. It's not that the politics aren't important. I'm as active as anybody else at trying to encourage my culture to make good choices in how it's shaped. But 
today want to talk about how do you respond to this issue with grace and truth? How do you respond to one another? How do we respond to those among us who are struggling with this as the primary struggle in their life? How do you respond to a letter like this one written as an open letter to the church from a lesbian? It's published on a blog on March 21st when I first saw its uh, posting. Let me read you just a short message. It says, to the churches concerning homosexuals and lesbians. Many of you believe that we do not exist within your walls, your schools, your neighborhoods. You believe that we are few and easily recognized. But I tell you, uh, we are your teachers, your doctors, your accountants, your high school athletes. We are all colors, shapes, and sizes. We are single and married, mothers, fathers. We are your sons, your daughters, your nieces, your nephews, your grandchildren. In the case of my family, your cousin. Virtually every home, every family, every circle of friends is touched by someone who would identify themselves as homosexual. I won't read the whole letter, but it was interesting how she continues in her letter. She says later on, she says, um, we are your congregation. We enter your doors weekly seeking guidance and some glimmer of hope that we can change. Like you, we have invited Jesus into our hearts. Like you, we want to be all that Christ wants us to be. Like you, we pray daily for guidance. And like you, we often fail. When the word homosexual is mentioned in the church, we hold our breath and sit in fear. Most often, this word is followed by condemnation, laughter, hatred, or jokes. Rarely do we hear words of hope. The letter goes on. I'll come back to it later. But, you know, as I listened to that letter and read that letter, I thought, you know something? I want to speak to that person as I speak to you. I want to help us as God's church understand his truth on this issue, but I also want us to understand, all right, God, how do you respond with grace and truth? What's that look like in real life? After all, we are nicknamed the body of Christ, right? And if we're the body of Christ, then we are the voice of Christ. If we're the voice of Christ, we communicate the message of Christ. And my prayer is that we can learn to communicate the message with the tone of Christ. I think, to be honest, that's my biggest struggle. I can dial in the message pretty quick, but to dial in the tone that I think Jesus would use is a bigger challenge. It's a very personal issue for all of us. It's a very personal issue, especially for those in the room, and I'm sure there are those of you in the room that say, Dale, you're speaking about my orientation. This is how I feel I'm wired. To you, I say, I'm glad you're here. And I'd love to get to know you better. Research indicates some research. You'll hear all kinds of different statistics. Seven to ten percent of the population would identify themselves as gay. Uh, other research I've seen that looks a little more credible to me puts it about three percent. Whether it's three percent, seven percent, ten percent, I don't care. I don't care if it's one percent. That's 1% that matters to Christ. So how do we respond to this issue? It's interesting that before we launch into the meat of the message, I just want to remind us of something, and that is um, Ryan did a great job last week addressing the issue of our sexuality uh, in terms of heterosexual sins and impurity, and, and, man, we got a lot to work on as a church. But he ended with this passage. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. You don't need to turn to it right now. It's in your outline. But I just want you to, to meet the church of Corinth, the church of Rome, or the church at Seacoast, because here's how he describes the resume, the past resume of the people that make up the church. I love this list. Okay, first, he says, you need to know that you're sitting among some fornicators, idolaters, and adulterers. And it's interesting. He leads with that. Okay? So that's, you know, welcome. Some of us... That's our background. 
We've been sleeping around before we were married. That's fornication. Okay, we worship false gods and idols and in the culture, that's idolaters. And and sometimes we make even sex that idol. And And then we, of course, some of us have been involved in adulterous relationships outside of marriage, being unfaithful. That's the church. And then he says, yeah, and the church is made up of the effeminates and the homosexuals. And then he goes into some other resumes of church folk. I like this list. Uh, thieves. <laughs> There's some thieves among us. And the covetous. I like this. I love the contrast, you know. Some people are bold enough to go out and steal what they want. Other people just covet it, but they don't have the guts to go after it, okay? So some of us aren't thieves, but we sure spend some time coveting, don't we? What we don't have. And then he adds a couple more interesting ones. Drunkards, revelers or revilers, and, and swindlers. I like swindlers. You know, that's a neat term. You know, swindler is the guy that wants the money. He wants what someone has. And to get more money, he will lie to you to close the deal. Now, I'm not going to ask for all the swindlers in the room to stand up. But there's probably more than a few. I know I've been tempted to lie to close the deal, make the sale. So in other words, here's the deal. This is the church. This is us. We ought to put this on the church website. If you like hanging out with fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminates, homosexuals, thieves and drunkards and swindlers, welcome to Seacoast. Because if I ask you to pick which of those you've done, probably all of us would stand up. I know coveting would get me. But then this line shows up. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus. And I think that is the line that the young lady that wrote that letter to the church was looking for. Because that's the line that delivers hope to all of these people with their sins. You see, what we learn from that passage is this. Homosexuality is not new. It was part of the culture in Corinth and Rome, and it's a part of our culture today. It has existed alongside of other sexual sins since the day that sin met sex and linked up and began to change it from the incredible gift that God had designed into something very, very broken. Because whether you deal with heterosexuality or homosexuality, the reality is in our culture, as the little video clip from last week, if that's not online, we need to get that posted. Great little video cartoon. Remember that last week? If not, you should have been here. It delivered the message that the real issue is not sex, it's sin and how sin has taken a wonderful, beautiful gift from God. I love sex as designed by God. Can I go on record with that? Okay. I'll say that right in front of my wife. I love it even more. But anyway, here we go. The reality is it's broken by our world. And we need to understand it not from the world's perspective, but from God's perspective. And that's true for all of us, no matter what our sexual orientation. So how would Jesus respond to the current issues or better yet to people? Real people like the gal that wrote that letter, like you and me. I want to do two things in the rest of our time. I want to talk about God's perspective. How do we learn from Scripture how to think about this? And then we want to look at this idea of how do you respond to uh, to it with grace and truth. Homosexuality, what is God's perspective? Open to uh, your Bible now to Romans chapter 1, two short verses that are pretty rich in content. Verses 26 and 27. Let me read them to you, and then I'll offer a definition of what we're talking about. He says, for this reason, verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. This is for the reason that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They refused to worship the true God, but they began to worship creation, worship themselves, worship sex. And he says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, men exchanged or abandoned, underline that word, abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
when we're talking about homosexuality in this passage, let me define first what we're talking about. Uh, let me give you a definition I picked up from an author, Jeff Olson, in his little booklet or book, a little mini book on this topic called When Passions Are Confused. He says, homosexuality, as we're discussing it, is the persistent preoccupation with erotic encounters with members of the same sex. That is, to entertain and cooperate in, either in our thoughts, that is, sexual fantasies, or our behaviors uh, with someone of the same sex. So it's just like heterosexual sin can be committed in the mind, or it can be committed in physical acts, the, the same would be true of homosexual sin in this passage. When I listen to Romans 1, let me give you five observations that we're going to build most of the morning around. Number one, here's the first thing I see, that according to God's Word, and, and again, if this is different from the culture or different of what you've been led to believe, just just listen and let's see where we end up, okay? Let's unpack the passage. First, homosexual behavior in this passage is described and it's labeled as sin and it's said to be rooted in degrading passions. So both of those things are important. Number one, it clearly identifies it as sin, but then it also, it doesn't say it's sin, but too bad some of you are just born that way. He says that your passions are degraded or degrading passions. It's interesting that he brings that out. We'll come back to that in a minute. In the Old Testament, you find a very similar statement in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, I'll get it to you on the screen to save you time, says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. And in the Hebrew text, that word for abomination means disgusting. It can be translated vile. Similar language is used of other sexual sins, including Last week's reference to impurity that dishonors the body. See, I find it very hard to miss God's clear warning and message that this is what happens when we let our our passions become degraded. Which leads to the second observation. And that is that in this passage, it's clear that homosexuality is not natural. Therefore, never God's will for a person's life. It's very clear that it's not God's plan. Uh, You know, he, the clear implication is that as mysterious as the roots of homosexuality may be, and and I will not pretend to have all the answers as to uh, how it happens and develops or, 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 or we'll deal with genetics in a little bit, but the reality is this. As complex as it is, it is not natural. It is not God's desire or will. So for those that might think, well, you know, it must be morally okay simply because for as long as I can remember, that's the way I have been wired. I I think as much as we need tremendous empathy and compassion for that person who feels like this is all that I've known, that this passage says that it is not natural. It is the unnatural. He uses words like exchange, abandon. Because it raises the question, okay, if it's, if it's not really God's desire for a person, then how am I to think about the idea that, you know, some ask the question, do homosexuals have a choice? Is it a choice? And to be honest, it's a very complex thing to respond to. But let me, let me approach it this way. Number three, when I look at the text, here's what I see is clear. That homosexuality, that is the orientation, may not be a choice. People feel like this is how I am. But the behavior clearly is a choice. Romans 1 describes the behavior, focuses on the behavior, and it clearly uses words of choice. I draw your attention to two of them. In Romans 1, it talks about that they exchange the natural for the unnatural. Uh, the other phrase is they say, and men abandoned the natural for the unnatural. Now, language like exchange and abandon are words of choice. They, they, they are words that presume that they, at one point, the natural or the, 
or uh, existed, and it was it was exchanged or abandoned for the unnatural. Now, again, I have tremendous empathy whenever I talk to friends of mine who are dealing with this and they say, Dale, I don't remember making that exchange. I don't remember making that abandonment, you know, because as far as I can remember, I was, quote, born that way. Now, at the same time, let's remember, none of us remember how we were born. A lot of us have different issues in our lives that we struggle with as adults. And and some of those issues we can trace back to as early as we can remember. In other words, at the earliest time that I began to sense sexual feelings, there are those who would say they, they felt a homosexual orientation from that earliest time. Maybe it was their teen years. Maybe it was even earlier. Maybe it was in grade school. I don't know when it was. But the reality is, at some point, that's kind of all they can remember. So that is reality for some of our friends. But that does not mean that it's healthy or natural for the person or the culture. There are a lot of things in our lives that uh, we remember that even as children we were wired that way. And um, I'll give you an example. I know a person that was extremely always getting in trouble with the law, always getting in trouble with their spouse because, I mean, they were just extremely hot-headed. I mean, they were angry, they were hostile, they had a temper, and, and they just said, hey, man, it's my Irish heritage. I mean, when I was a two-year-old, I had a hot, I was hot-tempered as a two-year-old. You know, I'm just, you know, other people say, hey, I'm always chilled out, nothing makes me mad. Okay, I mean, there's a lot of things in our culture that we, in our nature, that we, we can look back and, and say, I was that way as a child, but that in and of itself does not make it moral or right or God's will. And I'll explain why in just a minute. So I just point that out, that uh, even though homosexuality as an orientation may not be a, a choice, but the behavior clearly is. Even in the gay community, um, you hear different opinions on the question, is this a choice? Uh, I listened to the story of a gay activist recently, and, and she put it this way. She said that in, in, in her gay community, she said uh, some of her friends would be adamant about wanting it to be a choice because she says, it is a choice, it's my choice, and I have a right to make it. I could go either way, and I choose this. This was my choice. So don't take away my right to choose. Uh, others would say, well, no, I would never choose this. It's a tough life. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a harder life. And they would say, uh, of course I would not choose this, but it's the way that I feel that I am. So my point is, even in the gay community, is it a choice? You'll get different answers. But what are the roots of homosexuality? And let's go to that one, number four. I think the roots of homosexuality, and, and this is where I'll be a little fuzzier because I think Scripture is a little, a little bit fuzzier. There's some things it's very clear on, but here's my answer. It's deep, it's varied, and it's complex. And one of the mistakes I think we make as Christians is when we relate to the gay community in a way that we communicate that, you know something, this is just sin and you just need to repent and get rid of it, and, and we simplify it too much without acknowledging the complexity of its roots. Let me give you my simple take on trying to answer the question, okay? Number one, here's what I know for sure. It is rooted in our sinful nature. In other words, we are all born that way. One thing we must remember is that all of us are born with a natural bent towards sinful sex. We may be wired one direction or another, but I've never known a person that said to me, you know something, I was born holy. Okay, I was born pure. I was born just desiring purity in the area of my sexuality. Okay, uh, for me, it was the issue of lust. You know, as a young man who grew up and went to a secular university and my first roommate came in and plastered the walls with his collection from his favorite magazine, okay, uh, and, and the pages tended to kind of fold out, and they were very colorful, okay, uh, and I remember that, and I liked those images. 
For others, it's a different issue. But the point is, um, simply saying I was born that way never makes anything moral. And, and at the root of it really is the issue of our sinful nature. And therein we disagree with many in the gay community because our worldview as Christians is that you come out of the womb wired for sin and sinful by nature. And it's not just the culture that makes you or that messes you up. You, you don't come out as a blank slate. You come out with a bent towards sin and we all are born that way. But merely sensing that we have an orientation doesn't make it healthy or good for us or the culture. Number two, the other thing that seems undeniable is that our environment, our world does shape us, and that's true of our sexual identity as well. Dr. Dennis McFadden of the University of Texas, a neuroscientist, not writing from a Christian perspective at all, who studied this issue, wrote this. He said, any human behavior is going to be the result of complex intermingling of genetics and environment. It would be astonishing if it were not true for homosexuality. Andrew Sullivan was a uh, gay activist, is a gay activist, who wrote this. Let me read you a quote from an article entitled The Causes of Male Homosexuality. Sullivan writes this. He says that, In fact, Solomon says it would be self-deception to think of homosexuality as inherited like your hair color. He says gay people would doubtless like the hair analogy to be accurate because it would enable them to avoid the wrenching and often painful self-analysis they would have to otherwise uh, have to embark upon. But alas, it isn't. It would be bizarre if environmental influences did not play a profound role as well. He says elsewhere, he says, gay men often insist they were born that way. But gay activist and author Andrew Sullivan, this is actually the author now quoting Sullivan, says that any honest homosexual who ponders his family background from a classic distant father over-close mother perspective, we'll have to admit that Freud had something perceptive to say. And that's where he says, in fact, Solomon says it would be self-deception to think that homosexuality is inherited like your hair color. Now, this is not a statement from a, a Christian, but from someone who is actually a, a gay advocate. Another quote I ran across from Dr. Jeffrey Satinover says this, and this was published in the Journal of Human Sexuality. He says, the, the research agenda is being distorted by the political requirement that no associated traits should be discovered and that homosexuality should be falsely presented as directly inherited. The author of this article goes on to say there is, in fact, a wealth of older buried research identifying many common developmental and temperamental and family patterns connected to homosexuality. And this research has never been scientifically refuted. You see, the the issue in those quotes is simply this, is to recognize when you ask the question, then why why do you hear so much about uh, scientific studies or discoveries that hint, and that's almost always the word that's used, that hint at a possible uh, genetic or biological reason for a person being gay. And the reality is, when you look more deeply into those studies, you find what this person summarized. Uh, this was written by a scientist, a Ph.D. from Holland, who recently wrote, 2005, I think it was, this quote. He said, despite numerous suggestions to the contrary, the last 15 years of renewed research led even the behavioral geneticists who are in favor of a genetic explanation, that is for homosexuality, to the conclusion that genetic factors for homosexual inclinations as such do not exist. Periodically launched promising leads have invariably proven to be dead ends. In other words, there is much amateur speculation instead of serious science. Now, the reason I kind of 
pause on that a little bit is because I think there is so much being pumped out by the popular media that every time there's any study that has a hint that there may be a connection, that gets splashed on the cover of Time magazine or on NPR or whatever other news station. And then when the following research and more thorough examination shows that, well, it didn't really pan out, you'll never hear about it. And it's because it's really the political agenda that controls what's released to the public more, I believe, than pure science. We'll copy off a few of these articles for you in a week or two, so if you want to read them for yourself, you can. But then let me go, finally, one step further. Number four, what if it is in the genes? I mean, what if next week there's a proven, scientifically solid connection to genetics uh, or to biology that says certain people have this in their genetic makeup? I don't think it will happen, but if it does... Here's what I would say to that, you know, with with love, I would say this, that predisposition from birth is never a good basis for defining morality. In your outline, I've given you this statement because it captures a lot of what I think we need to understand as we speak of our faith lovingly with those who would disagree. Here's what I wanted you to not miss. So it's in a box in your outline. Moral truth is never set by what's inside of man. Since we all have a genetic predisposition towards sin, we inherit our sin nature. It is, def- it is defined by what is outside of man, above man, beyond man, that is our true and perfect and holy creator. So, you know, the examples are many that I could give about the danger of deciding that if it's the way I'm wired, then I should I should consider it moral. I mentioned a couple earlier. I mean, just because a person feels that they're wired to have multiple partners. I read an article in Time magazine a few years ago that, that basically on an evolutionary perspective said this. It said, look, if we're nothing more than more advanced primates, and we know that many primates um, are, um, are are wired or, or, or many Animals are wired to spread their seed around to make sure they keep them, you know, keep propagating the, the species. You know, I mean, then, then if we're kind of wired biologically as men to spread it around, then why are we condemning ourselves when we do? See, just because I'm wired to want multiple women doesn't mean having multiple women is good, especially when I go home and face my wife. Okay, forget biology. So, so the fact that from the earliest time I can remember, I liked girls. Liked a lot of girls. I'd love to have multiple girlfriends. They just never cooperated with me. You know, so that's the reality. So, you know, you could, you could, you could look at a lot of different issues in this way. A lifelong attraction toward any lifestyle does not inherently make it moral or healthy or even good. A natural bent, one direction or another, does not normalize it, justify it, and certainly it doesn't moralize it. Many of us struggle with sins that are driven by desires rooted in, that's just the way I am. But therein is where Christ offers hope. The fifth thing I have to observe from Romans 1, and we're not going to dwell on it, is that Romans 1 does teach one more fact, and that is that homosexuality, like all sexual sin, has consequences, and they are painful. I talked to a friend who spends their time as part of their job trying to help people deal with uh, homosexual um, tendencies who want to change, and and, and they've done this their, for most of their career. And, and they said this to me. They said, Dale, do not be fooled. They said, uh, these folks are hurting. There's a lot of pain in their life. And their lifestyle propagates and even increases that pain. The direct quote, I think he said, was, there is nothing gay about being gay. And, and it should not just cause us as Christians to say, see, we told you so. We instead need compassion and empathy for the person that feels that their natural desires are, in many cases, wrecking their life or causing great pain. 
So how are we to respond? If this is the essence of what Scripture teaches, then how are we to respond with grace and truth? Um, you know, but before just unpacking my list, I thought it would be better for to let you listen to a story of Rosaria Butterfield, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, a Ph.D. in literature and English, a tenured professor at Syracuse University, Ph.D. from Ohio State University. We can forgive that. But she tells a little bit of her story, of her journey spiritually. She was an avid uh, gay activist, a committed lesbian, and in her own words, and we'll put her long version of her story on the website. But let me just show you a couple clips from it. She hated Christians and anything that smacked of Christians, and she felt they hated her. And then she started doing some research. Here's how it began. I took note that the Bible was an engaging literary display of every genre and trope and type. It had edgy poetry, deep and complex philosophy, and compelling narrative stories. It also embodied a worldview that I hated. Sin, repentance, Sodom and Gomorrah, absurd. At this time, the promise keepers came to town and parked their circus at the university. On my war against stupid, I wrote an article published in the local newspaper. It was 1997. The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. One letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. It encouraged me to explore the kind of questions that I admire. Ken did not argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. In his letter, he described Jesus as someone who entered into history, not someone who emerged from it. I thought this was insane. I was a historical materialist, and I believed that people proceed from history and are shaped, for good or for ill, by the culture that molds them. I didn't know how to respond to his letter, so I threw it away. And later that night, I fished it out of the department's recycling bin and put it back on my desk, where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialist worldview, but Christianity is a supernatural worldview. Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my research project without him even knowing it. If I was going to understand how this book, the Bible, got so many people off track and how this man, Jesus, persuaded so many people to follow him, then I needed to understand Christianity as a supernatural idea. At this point in my life, the category of the supernatural was reserved for Stephen King novels. With the letter, Stephen King was a big donor to um, our English department also. So so we all had to tuck in a Stephen King novel in a a class. It's kind of fun. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses and wacky interpretations on placards at gay pride marches. That Christians who mocked me at gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved was going to hell was as clear as the sky is blue. But Ken's letter did not mock. It engaged. So when his letter invited me to dinner at his house to discuss these matters more fully, I accepted. My motives at the time were clear. Surely, this would be good for my research. But something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. 
They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. Ken and Floyd omitted two important steps in the rule book of how Christians should deal with a heathen like me. They did not share the gospel with me at that first dinner, and they did not invite me to church. Because of these omissions to the Christian rule book, I knew that when Ken extended his hand to me in friendship, it was safe to close my hand in his. I think there's a lot you can pick out from her story. Let me share with you just a few quick words of what I learned. I'll put it in four C's. Confession. Be humble and acknowledge our own sins. I think if we're going to have any kind of an impact on our culture and its own problems, we've got to lead with a humility that acknowledges that we don't have our act together either. That We've got our own struggles, our own sins, especially in this area of our sexuality. Grace should always humble us. You understand the grace of God that we believe in and that we put our trust in. Grace says, I am not better than them. I am just more blessed. There but by the grace of God go I. Number two, compassion. They reached out to Rosario with love and grace. Grace does that. Grace humbles us first. Then grace should increase our compassion for the person who disagrees with us, who is confused by the culture, confused by the world, confused by their upbringing. Something I skipped over a a little bit ago earlier was the fact that even the environment of our family, uh, our family environments of how we're raised, all of this shapes our sexual identity. A lot of that is out of that person's control and, and they've never understood anything else. A lot of the The hurts that they've experienced uh, are helping shape who they are. And we need to lead with compassion and empathy. Number three is conviction. Uh, We still need to speak truth with clarity. I love the fact in that story that, uh, yeah, when when Rosaria came for dinner, they still uh, engaged in serious discussion where they could agree to disagree, but they reached out in love. I love the fact that she was impressed that they prayed before their meal. But I love the fact that she said, but their prayer was different from what I'm used to hearing Christians pray. It was authentic. It was real. It was vulnerable. It modeled confession and compassion. But you also speak truth with clarity. There is no hope if we do not speak the truth to people that are struggling. The letter I opened the sermon with, the open letter to the church from a lesbian, goes on to say this to the church who wants to just accept everyone the way they are. Here is what this gal wrote. Let me continue on in her letter. She said, rarely do we hear any words of hope. That's where I left off. At least we recognize our sin. Does the church as a whole recognize theirs? Do you see the sin of pride that you are better than or more acceptable to Jesus than we are? Have you been Christ-like in your relationships with us? Would you meet us at the well, at a restaurant, for a cup of water or coffee? Would you touch us even if we showed signs of leprosy or AIDS? Would you call us down out of the trees the way Jesus did Zacchaeus and invite yourself to be our guest? Would you allow us to sit at your table and break bread? Can you love us unconditionally and support us as Christ works in our lives, as he works in your lives to help us all to overcome? To those of you To those of you speaking to the church who would change the church to accept the gay community and its lifestyle, you give us no hope at all. You are willing to compromise the word of God to be politically correct. We are not deceived. If you accept your willingness to compromise, then we must also compromise. We must, therefore, accept your lying and adultery and lust and idolatry and addictions. Your sins. 
We do not ask for your acceptance of our sins any more than we accept yours. We simply ask for the same support, love, guidance, and most of all, hope that is given to the rest of the congregation. We are your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not what we shall be. But we thank God we are not what we were. Let us work together to see that we all arrive safely home. Signed, a sister in Christ. See, the answer is not to water down our conviction, but it's to speak our convictions with clarity, with compassion, with confession. And most of all, to speak it with a Christ-centered focus, offering hope and help through Christ. That's what happened to Rosaria's story. I want to close by letting you listen to what happened in her life. Fast forward two years later after she first met this family. Here's what happened. I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed long into the unfolding day. And when I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked in the mirror of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide the soul and the spirit, judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? I still felt like a lesbian in my body and in my heart. That was, I I felt my quote-unquote real identity. But what is my true identity? The Bible makes clear that the real and the true have a troubled relationship, at least on this side of eternity. For many people in the Bible, their true identity and calling comes only after a long struggle with God, with wilderness, with dreams and hopes and plans. The Bible makes clear that my future and my calling always echo an attribute of God. Obedience constrains. It always mirrors suffering, as every selection implies a sacrifice. Who is this Jesus? Did I know him? Did I still lack understanding? Could I trust him? And then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus. No altar calls in a Reformed Presbyterian church, so no fanfare, no manipulation. I was attesting to this one simple truth, that the line of communication that God ordained for his people required this wrestling with scripture, and that I truly wanted to both hear God's voice breathed into my life, and I wanted God to hear my pleas. The fog burned away. The whole Bible, each jot and tittle, was my open highway to a holy God. My hands let go of the wheel of self-invention. I came to Jesus alone, open-handed and naked. It was a crushing revelation. It was Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time. Here was the other crushing revelation. My conversion hurt many people. I could write a whole book with the title, quote, what my obedience to God costs other people, unquote. I can do the body count of those I love who were pressed and mangled by the consequences of Christ's call on my life. In this war of worldviews, Ken and Floyd were there. The church, who had been praying for me for years, was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. I lost everything but the dog. I speak today about matters that happened over a decade ago. I'm now a wife and a mother, but I don't necessarily believe that that is the punctuation mark of my personal journey and healing. I don't want to minimize it, but I don't want to maximize it. God separated me unto the gospel to reveal his son in me, not to show what a delightful wife and mother I can be. 
Am I healed? Yes. The gospel and the fellowship of godly women coached and nurtured my heart and my mind. Am I changed? Yes, from the root. And it was painful. And it was powerful. And it was painful. And it was powerful. The power of God, the power of the gospel to transform people. It's a great story. The essence of what I hear in that is this. We need to remember that the answer for homosexuality is not heterosexuality. It's Jesus. I close with a quote from an article that I got from Steve Bennett, written by a friend of his who said this. When it comes to homosexuals, our desire for them is not heterosexuality, but holiness. We're not trying to make gays straight. We're trying to lead them straight to Jesus, just as we would anyone else. Once they trust him, he transforms their life from the inside out. Confession. Compassion, clarity with the truth, and a Christ-centered dependence. It's really keeping the focus on Jesus. Because until someone engages with Jesus Christ, then I wouldn't expect them to change. Because I know every change in my life that's been for the good, It's not because I got my act together. It's because I came to Christ. So we need to keep the focus there. Pray with me. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the tone of Scripture, for the tone of Christ, for the tone of grace. I pray that we might be the voice of Jesus, carrying the message of Jesus, carrying and delivering that message with the tone that is set by compassion and empathy and grace. May we in humility be your voice in a confused world that we live in. So, Father, as we turn our hearts now for a moment of worship, we ask that you just kind of work in us, that we might go out the door prepared to be your church with your message in Christ's name. Amen.